0: Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you here with us for yet another episode, episode 77. Hopefully it's as lucky as that number sounds. Today we're going to be talking about a couple of things. And and before we start talking about dolls, we want to have a little bit of a... Was t- 77 lucky? Well, the number seven's lucky, and so two sevens.
1: Okay. Extra lucky. I always think of 711. That's when people pointed out to me.
0: Kind of like how everyone okay. knows that the the, lucky the least seven. lucky number in the world is 1313, you know, because it's 213s next to each other.
1: Wouldn't 3 be worse then?
0: My point is no one thinks that number is <laughs> okay, unlucky okay. and I'm just being stupid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I stepped into that Lu- one. Then. <laughs> lucky number 77. There is no lucky number 77. It's starting right now, Dan. This could have been something if you had held your tongue.
1: We could have just let it slide yeah. and maybe people would have People would have it. Start,
0: started being like, oh, yeah, lucky number 77. Where did that come from? It was me right here, but no. Never mind. This is just episode 77 of Zero Significance. Now I'm too frustrated at you to continue, Dan. I think we just call it a day. You know what? No episode today, guys. Come back for episode 78.
1: Fake news is what we're what we're offering. 77's lucky.
0: Uh, last week, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about Joe Rogan. We talked about the news. We talked about, at the end, Project Veritas and a little bit about who they are and what they do. This episode, we'd like to continue that. But before we do that, we'd like to share a couple of uh, interesting stories that provide context into why Project Veritas is even worth talking about. So I'm going to share a story, and then and then Dan's going to share a story. My story should not be news to anyone listening. We've mentioned it before. It took place about three weeks ago, and that was uh, Joe Biden's news conference where the famous... Uh, Gaff about a minor incursion from Russia into the Ukraine was uttered, where he said, It depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do. And this uh, blew up in Biden's face. This was, you know, on January 19th, is when he said it in that press conference. And it was quite the scandal because it was. Him strongly implying that Ukraine could invade a little bit, whatever that means, a minor incursion, and the U.S. might not do anything, which could easily be interpreted as an invitation for Russia to do something without consequences. Or with the potential for no consequences, of course, the White House immediately goes into spin control. You know, the press secretary releases a statement, which is what the White House is supposed to do. You know, that's that's all expected,
1: <laughs> right? What and probably should do if you say something like this
0: that affects international. Absolutely, absolutely, they, they needed <laughs> to clarify and say no. If you if s- if Russia suggest... does something, we're going to we're going to act. You know, which is which is fantastic because those kind of statements can help prevent a war that might have been started by you know Brett Biden's uh, not thought out remark. What what I found interesting and what is incredibly relevant to our discussion of what good reporting looks like is an analysis posted by a CNN editor. At uh 7:52 p.m. on that Wednesday after the press conference, and the the tagline is the seven most important lines from Joe Biden's news conference. Now, Dan, go ahead and guess for the audience which of those lines one through seven was the famous gaffe.
1: Was the one that got news and had to be spun? And yeah, and, so and, so is that? And, does
0: that make it one? Does that make it three?
1: <laughs> by the judgment of other media groups. Was clearly number one. Where in the order of CNNs is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I th- I hope the audience is picking a number, and I hope that number is much bigger than seven. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not in there, is it? You know, you know, there there are audience, and so they're all thinking what we're thinking, which is CNN didn't mention it, which is absolutely the case. He, the the seven the seven points you've got. Uh, I didn't overpromise. I have pr- probably outperformed what anybody thought would happen. Talking about himself. Wait, was that number that one? Was number one. That's not. It's not not even about Ukraine. Well, and this is a press conference about more than Ukraine, but right. still that's not about anything. Yes.
1: That's that's a self-assessment. Yes. Why would his self-assessment of how good he is at being a president be worth mentioning? <laughs> like that'd be like the most important thing you could hear from us is us telling you that we're amazing. No, yeah. Like and we it- we we are the best podcast in the world, and you should share it with all your friends and that's the most important takeaway from this, is just our assertion of our quality. <laughs> anyway, carry on. This is a good start. Number one is is self-aggrandizement from, from a politician who has no incentive to do that, right? They're very honest in their self-assessments.
0: And then number two and three are about COVID and Build Back Better, respectively. Number four is finally when he gets to Russia, where he says, I'm not so sure – and then in brackets, Russian President Vladimir Putin is certain what he is going to do. My guess is he will move into, a move in, again brackets, to Ukraine. He has to do something. And that right there, number four, is the only thing that's mentioned about Ukraine. Nothing else, no mention of the gaff. no mention of, of the response afterwards, no mention of the fact that he could have incidentally caused World War III, which is obviously an exaggeration. But, but the fact yeah. that that's even a possibility would make it an important and newsworthy part of his of his news conference. You know, it would be an important line by any way you look at the word important, and you look at the way you look at the word line. But it didn't make it into this article, and. The question is why. And an easy argument you can make from CNN's point is don't draw attention to this because it doesn't help anybody, right? Don't draw attention to this. The same reason the White House is covering it up – not covering it up – is spinning it. Covering up is, uh, is the wrong term because they're not saying it didn't happen. They're saying it didn't happen the way you thought it happened. You know what I mean? The president was never saying what yeah, he said. Spin. Mm-hmm. And CNN is taking it a step farther which is to not even mention that he said it and the and it helps the White House, it helps foreign relations. But it also doesn't help the American people whose, theoretically the reporters are there to support. You know what I mean? They're not there to help the White House. They're there to let us know what's going on. And CNN made an, a choice to support the White House over supporting the American people. Which uh, brings us to a much older story that Dan's going to tell us about.
1: Yeah, we're going to jump back in time a little bit, unfortunately, because if you want to look at good journalism, (laughs) or a time when it was at least more common, back in time is where you've got to go. There were – this particular story happened in 1978 – and was done by the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, they, they funded this investigation, we'll call it. They're, you've probably heard the term Chicago-style politics. Unlike Chicago-style pizza and other Chicago-style foods, Chicago style politics is not good. Chicago style (laughs) politics is where everybody is greasing everybody else's palms. So in that sense, it is kind of like Chicago style (laughs) pizza. Greasy, yes. (laughs) That can be. uh, That's not always a bad thing if the food's good enough. Um, The uh, it was known for as a city known for its corruption, and what was happening is the reporters, like the Chicago Sun Times were getting news all the time, and by news I mean their s- sources would report to them secondhand, you know, telling them what they experienced. Um, I guess firsthand from the they're getting it from the source, but uh, they're yeah, they, then they had a lot of witnesses.
0: information that there was this corruption going on. Yeah, but people it would talk about it all the time. Necessarily printable,
1: and the reason why it wasn't printable was because the corruption was actually based in the politics there, the politics of Chicago was corrupt. So you have corrupt state inspectors, corrupt police officers, a corrupt mayor, and corrupt bureaucracies running it, right? This is all. And so to, in order to get a source, that source has to expose themselves. And so you get them talking to reporters off the record all the time about the corruption. But no and one will come forward knowledge.
0: because they'll lose their job. They'll lose everything because everyone yeah. else will turn on them.
1: The key detail here is that, that that kind of evidence is not admissible in court. And so you can't bring someone in unless they're willing to expose themselves to some degree, right? You can, there are ways that the courts can keep, uh, keep the identities of, of the people testifying somewhat anonymous. Um, but it still it still exposes you, and especially if the problem is actually in the legal system itself, there isn't really any protection for you. You're going to be exposed. Um, today, we people get doxed all the time by uh, by people who don't like what they're doing when they're trying to be anonymous, or even even just trying to have some, you know, not have their home and, and things commonly known. So they're looking at this particular problem: the powers that be are corrupt and they can't get people to testify. And they get a little creative, and they do something that was actually quite common at the time, though this particular example is unique in its scale and how intense it is. They go and they purchase a bar. Uh, not an expensive bar, not a nice one, uh, just, a, just a kind of a dive bar that's relatively close in location to their paper. And two journalists one of whom has a had a reputation uh she was really something i i just reading about this story and a few others have made me really curious to to learn more about her zeckman was her name um and she had a uh, she had done this kind of thing before going in undercover and getting these kind of stories so they buy this bar and she and another journalist pose as a husband and wife running the bar and even as they buy the bar, the person who helps them get the location explains how he's going to help them avoid various taxes and pass inspections <laughs> immediately out the door. As they are now the firsthand experience, you know, they're the ones that these kind of people had been telling them this stuff was happening. Immediately, they've got people interacting with They've already with them got in evidence. <laughs> and so they put, uh, they build in uh, places for, hidden photographers and cameras and things and and they set up this elaborate uh trap essentially um though i, I suppose i should be careful with that word because the term entrapment is going to be important as this discussion goes on mm-hmm. but they this this uh they named the bar the mirage so they set up this this mirage this fictitious front um of this
0: bar it's very tongue in cheek by the way it it's so it gives me such like I, pleasure no, to know I this is that. a real thing. <laughs> it sounds like the kind of thing that writers would have come up with. You know, yes, we're going yes, to create this, this, this massive lie. What should we call it? Well, we'll call it the Mirage.
1: Yes, yes. Someone at one point, uh, according to you know, oral oral discussions on this later, oral histories later, um, said that they had pieced it together and they were convinced that this place was a front, and the bartender just laughed it off. <laughs> but the person was entirely right. The whole thing was a front. Um, so they're recording and, and gathering information on everything that happens in that bar by the time they get to opening day, they have had, uh, they're deliberately failing to meet the safety standards of the city. And they have, they have been visited by, I believe four, at least four different inspectors at that point, all of whom take bribes to wave them through so that they can actually open. And they, and some of them do things like give them advice about how to avoid getting the police involved because the police are much more expensive to bribe. And they always come back. They compared them to flies coming back to, (laughs) to garbage. Like, like this is a, this is such a, a a large system of corruption that people now are experienced. You know, this isn't, obviously isn't their first time, right? This is, this is how it works. And here's how you get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. The guy who Mm -hmm. found the place is like, here's how we maximize your tax evasion, (laughs) right? Here's having perfected this art. Um, and, the the details of it are just uh, just amazing so eventually of course they they come forward um oh. with their
0: yeah after it. after collecting all this data they after
1: collecting all this information they now have all kinds of proof and evidence that is going to stand up in court and they publish a 25 part series in their papers this used to be pretty <laughs> common where you'd 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 you know Part one is the teaser. Mm-hmm. This is this is what's going to be coming. And then part part two, you know, they're they're giving you some of the details and setting it up, and you're like, oh my gosh, this city, I know this city's corrupt. This reveal is going to be incredible. And they they really capitalize on the story element of it. And obviously spreading it out over 25 parts. Part of it is they have a crazy amount of evidence on a ton of different people and organizations and in city bureaucracies and things. And um and people Are reading this like they're reading, watching the next episode of their favorite show. Mm -hmm. They're eating this up. Um, which is good because this is really, really expensive to do. (laughs) You're buying a tavern for a story Mm and you're running it. This is not a, uh, your average, uh, internet reporter does not have the means to, to do this kind of thing. Um, and putting the money together was, was difficult in itself initially. And,
0: at least they save uh, money on taxes, though. That probably helps. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh,
1: they had to be very careful throughout the whole thing that they didn't end up doing something illegal because no, they're tracking sense. everything. Yeah, yeah. And so they're walking a fine line. Um, nothing they did broke the law, um, which is a, something we'll discuss a little bit more as we go and what that entails and what those laws are and why they're the way they are and why they're not what people expect them to be. And finally... It gets to this story is on such a scale and scope that, uh, that something like a third of the city's electrical inspectors are fired uh, and a ton of people are indicted. And I'm like, uh, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, I want to say the number of people indicted is in the hundreds and that there's something like 50 people who are actually charged with crimes. Um, it's, it's, it is. One of the biggest, uh, from my understanding, again, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding from what I've been reading, what I've been hearing from uh, uh, different reporters and things, this is one of the biggest undercover operations run by like a a journalist group, right? Mm -hmm. You get governments that do stings and things on massive scale and drug deals and things. But as far as private little little news papers- Yeah, a (laughs) non-government
0: entity to pull something off like this.
1: This was a big deal, and it results in changes all the way up to the state level, and even uh, had an impact on federal policies. Um, but the states are generally responsible for these kind of inspections and things. So it changes state laws. The city is uh, is significantly affected by it. Yeah, because um, it it's not just about the number the of mayor people retiring
0: who get who get you know indicted or prosecuted or even convicted it's about the fact that this was exposed in such a way that everyone had to face the music and so even if some people were able to escape charges it forced the government to change which is incredible
1: it is incredible and imagine you're one of these corrupt inspectors and you're not caught in this you're now afraid mm-hmm. you're it the, the things have changed things have changed even if you're not caught in it um, even if you're not one of those unfortunate, uh, probably relatively small number of people in such a big city who, who were directly, uh, found guilty of something because of this. And uh, as you said, it changes the state. It has an impact on everything. Um, it gets to the point where this is going to be considered for the highest award in journalism, the Pulitzer Prize. And people thought that it was something of a shoe in for, for this award. Um, it ended up. Losing, on and and to this day, um, this is one of those stories that people talk about because the reason it lost, uh, or the given reason that it lost, and the the there are some famous reporters who argued that this shouldn't get the reward, um, and the reason was because of all the deception involved, and if you look at the history of reporting in the United States. That time period, 1978 and thereabouts, marks a significant change in the style of reporting and how people feel about this kind of undercover work.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And we have not returned to it yet. Investigative journalism, there's two sides to this. One of them is the economic side that we're not going to get into very much. But it's worth noting that this kind of thing is expensive. It's really easy to go to an event and ask some questions of willing participants and repeat what they said. It's really easy to show up to Biden's press conference and listen to the words and, and then write something about it. That has an extremely low cost. Buying the Mirage does not. Mm-hmm. And while you're going to be rewarded for it to some degree, if you can get, you know, the, uh, the cost benefit ratio is very different and is more difficult to monetize. I think in today's world you could monetize it much easier because it would be a rarity and I think people would flock to an organization that could do it and do it well, but that's it's going kind to of besides the point and something again that we'll probably mention later. But for now, comparing CNN which is covering for the powers that be and hiding mistakes to an organization like the 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 Sun Times here, Chicago Sun Times, yeah, the Sun Times, um, and and these journalists going undercover, which is which is a legitimate risk Mm -hmm. as well to their own to their own safety. Um, It's a very different world, one where journalists would take risks and were willing to do what was necessary to get the truth when they knew there was corruption, when there were hidden things that they couldn't get at, when honest people would not tell them the things necessary to uproot the corruption, right? They're, they were looking at a very specific dilemma. The powers that be were corrupt. The people that knew about it would not testify. What do you do? What are you, what is okay at that point and what isn't? And that's the dilemma that's still debated and continues. And it's, it, it's just a really, it's a really interesting world. Well,
0: and it, and it, It raises a lot of questions about what the role of journalism is, you know, because people could argue, I mean, you think about today's world and and what the past two years have have shown us, people could easily argue today that the Chicago Sun-Times shouldn't have done what they did, that they shouldn't have, have published a giant expose exposing all of these people because it was incredibly destabilizing, you know what I mean? It was not it was not an easy transition you know what i mean for the for the entire city to lose faith in almost every branch of government you know what i mean for the yes, for the yes, government yes. to be discredited in such a way was destabilizing not just for the government but for the city you know what i mean i'm sure you can ask someone yeah. who lived through that that it had a real effect on their day-to-day life and was was shocking and painful in many different ways not just for the people who were ended up who ended up being convicted and of course those people would probably argue a similar thing about how they were just doing what everyone else was doing and what they had to survive and next thing you know they're getting locked up and and those are all the kinds of arguments that that could easily be made today about why that kind of journalism isn't done anymore
1: there were people who argued that if you didn't announce that you were a reporter, that wasn't clear from the get go. um, Then you were doing something immoral, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. any level of deception, even, even just letting them believe whatever they believe, you know, not making your intentions clear uh, was, uh was immoral and, uh, and unethical conduct for a journalist. And this is where the, story of Project Veritas becomes really interesting. Um, Project Veritas, led by James O'Keefe, is a nod back to this kind of reporting.
0: Um, I mean, I'd say it's I think more it, than a nod. It's more than a, it's I'd more say, than a nod. I'd say it's, right. a, right it's a, a resurgence so of, of this kind of journalism in a world where there isn't right. this kind of journalism at all.
1: Right. Right. Uh at this point, we we pick on CNN. CNN is a is my favorite whipping boy. Oh yeah. Um, but they're if they were alone or or you know exceptional, then it wouldn't be a big deal. They're not exceptional. Uh, most of the the news organizations are playing some kind of that they they speak truth to power when their party isn't in power (laughs) and they speak the, whatever truths they think are most likely to get their party into power. It's a very selective game. And they're, as we've, we've said many times there, they select the information based on what they want you to decide as from having interacted with the information. Ultimately it's a, it's manipulative. Their, their goal is to get you to do and think and act in certain ways. And that's the, that's their starting point. How you get there um, is, is just a practical problem that they try and figure out, and, and pose the seven most important things that Biden said to uh, to to maneuver you. Um, and uh, in response to that reporting, um, I look at the looking at it on a broader scale. Um, there are a lot of potential solutions. You could see that's obviously a problem. I think anybody who's willing to admit that that's what's happening would see that as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe they'd say it's justified by the fact that uh, this warlike like mentality, but they, I, I'm sure they would prefer uh, something else. Uh, a lot of people have created different mediums in which to try and solve the problem and try and provide alternatives. Some people try and be better reporters Right? they take the high road. People like Barry Weiss who leave, she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the kind of journalism you deserve. Mm-hmm. And, and that's higher quality and is honest, it isn't manipulative. i um, breaking points is another, uh, you get the kind of long form discussions pioneered by people like Joe Rogan who's being attacked. Um, but others who have seen that medium and been like, you know, if we have a if we have a two hour discussion about something or an hour discussion about something, and when it's in good faith and we're thinking out loud and we're not deceiving people, then the end, even if it's clumsy and we we bounce around a little bit and it isn't as polished and it isn't, and we don't know exactly how people are going to take it, it's going to be better in the long run. Mm-hmm. And so these long form discussions have have cropped up. You get people like Sam Harris and Brad Weinstein and. Jordan Peterson and others, and and it's a kind of re-education. Uh, it's an it's a it's an attempt to get people to be able to think for themselves and get out of and perceive these deceptions and navigate the world better with good information. Um. You don't get very many who are like, if this thing is corrupt, and if they are not going to tell us the truth willingly, and if the people under them who think it's a problem, aren't willing to come forward and, and expose it. Maybe we can get at it from them. Anyway, we, maybe mm. we can, we can, like, if you were to say, what would, what would persuade someone that CNN is corrupt? I think CNN is corrupt I, by, I think, I think most of the new major North organizations are rightfully considered corrupt. Mm-hmm. How do you convince someone? How do you show someone? And how do you reduce their power in the world and their influence? You could reason with them all day, but but there is nothing is going to be as compelling as their own testimonies against their organizations, their own confessions. I guess this is in terms of crime. The most powerful evidence is for someone to say, yeah, I did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I did I did it. Stole that thing. I killed that person, etc. Um, in most cases, obviously, you can get a false confession occasionally, but but confessions are the gold standard as far as evidence is concerned. And if no, I exposing think you're thinking corruption of, is necessary.
0: Uh, a randomized controlled trial. <laughs> if we could get CNN to enter of, a randomized <laughs> controlled trial, then we could find out the truth. <laughs> you going to bring up the gold standard there. like that. Yeah,
1: the gold standard of evidence. Yeah, yes, exactly. that's a, I, that is a phrase that we've applied very differently in speaking of COVID. Uh, the gold Sorry, standard of legal it. evidence, of culpability. Yes, no, worth noting. Um, I, we enjoy where these things collide and where the, the word play. Uh, the, uh, but a confession is the gold standard Did you just say we enjoy
0: this thing instead of laughing about it? That was the most boring way to chuckled. enjoy that I've ever heard. <laughs> Your little explanation to the audience. We enjoy these these these. these I assure funny you, Brad's things. funny. Oh, yes. I know, very I know I'm humorous. not laughing. and
1: <laughs> <laughs> Take my word for it. We'll make that point one of the seven most important things from this podcast. <laughs>
0: I get it. I get it. You're wearing a shirt and tie, Dan, but you're killing me over here. You're killing I me. I chuckled. I chuckled. No, okay. I was fine with the chuckle, but that I little explanation afterwards had was, we been texting, was too much for me.
1: Had we been texting, there would have been at least two ha's in the ha ha.
0: <laughs> it was and just been, it was just too professional and I had to draw a line <laughs> somewhere.
1: I uh I have Various modes and they compete with one another. I can have one running at a time. I run one program and it's careful with speech and explanit. And explanations is what's running right now. (laughs) Brad occasionally blows it up,
0: but I gotta do something here. Why (laughs) why else am I here, Dan? Continue with whatever you were saying, if you can remember.
1: Whatever I was saying is a good question. I was I was talking about uh, the evidence of a confession. Yes. Um. If if it is important that corrupt institutions are known and exposed. Then, and, and if you are going to, you, you cannot simply rely on taking them at their word. You can't go to CNN and say, CNN, let me, let me sit down with a CNN reporter and ask them, are you simply representing the Democratic party's interests? The answer will be no, right? <laughs> if they're, if they're willing to lie about it, if they're willing to deceive people, which is in some sense, the very definition of corruption. they are they're Well, it's funny interests. that you
0: mentioned that because CNN has done that. They've had conversations on the air <laughs> about how they're not biased and they're not corrupt and things like that.
1: mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you get behind the scenes, right? You get one step beyond that where they're discussing what news stories they're going to present. And you get a whistleblower or some kind of undercover investigative journalist and – and that quickly falls apart. Um, so –
0: Well, and, and, and I think it's a good point to, to point out that Project Veritas is different than just whistleblowers. You know, yes. whistleblowers is where you have a willing party who comes forward yes. and says, my company is doing this wrong. And is doing something wrong, you know. And, and they, they come forward and it's usually – I mean, sometimes it's anonymous, sometimes it's not. It just depends. And they present their information, the report takes that information and reports on it.
1: Yeah, and a good whistleblower has hard evidence, even if they're not coming forward. Mm-hmm. They can give you documents, they can give you...
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. What's What's different about Project Veritas is, instead of doing that, they're doing what the Sun-Times did, but on a smaller scale. Scale. They're pretending to not be journalists. They're having casual conversations With people who work for these companies and recording the conversations, usually audio and video, and then taking those videos and publishing them and saying, here is what they said in casual conversation about the corruption that takes place on a regular basis at this company or this company and this organization and this organization. And it's incredibly effective Because people in casual conversation will reveal information, which is why people know things, you know, generally, kind of like how the Sun-Times knew before they launched their investigation that there was something going on because people talk, but that's different than people talking on the record. And so James O'Keefe and Project Veritas use that fact to their advantage to get people to reveal information that normally they would hold secret, which is incredibly effective, at exposing major scandals, which is something Project Veritas has done for a number of years now quite effectively.
1: Yes, it's, it's interesting. So when they started, there's a little background on them, and then, and then we'll get into the complicated ethics of the particular situations themselves. Because I, I don't think people don't want to live in a world where they may be recorded at any moment and casual things they say may be used against them at any time. We don't like the idea that that when I'm just talking, that may be taken as uh, out of context and uh, you know you, the, the classic example being you're at a bar and you're a little drunk and you're, you're, you're talking to your friends and you say stupid things, and that's just the way it is People like to be able to relax that way. Um, but it Project Veritas began with, uh, with that kind of investigative journalism work. There were the, it's worth noting that James O'Keefe who runs it is, uh, it's my understanding that he is openly conservative. And that affects how people perceive the work. And that affects, that affects to some degree, the things that he focuses on. But that being said, if he's doing the work well, then what he's offering Regardless of where, you know, of his own beliefs is, uh, is worth knowing. It may expose corruption, right? There's corrupt institutions all over the place and it's worth, it's worth, uh, knowing which ones are corrupt and, and, and having those things come to light. Um, but he, uh, so he does these kind of investigative journalism things where he's undercover. He's, de- he has deceived people at least to some degree. He is recording them secretly and then reveals that information. Now, they try not to uh, edit the footage. And if you look into their work, it's actually uh, really, really solid in my estimation in terms of, um, you, know, they, they're not, you can't always have the full context. But in terms of, uh, are they editing this and cutting things so the person is saying something that they didn't intend to say, you know, that they didn't actually say? Mm-hmm. Is there deception involved in the editing? I don't think so. Um, and there may be particular cases where that's not true. But in general, I don't think so. And what I've seen, I don't think so. I think they're giving an accurate representation of it. And they do not spin what they show. There's no article attached. There's no, uh, there's, here's who this person is. Here's what they said.
0: Mm-hmm. And you can Which watch it. Which is very it. unusual.
1: Yeah, it's it's in a very naked reporting.
0: That's not how reporting normally works. Even Even in the case of of you know the sun times it's not just yes. here are quotes no it's we've we have put together a narrative for you to make it easy to to digest this information
1: mm-hmm. now as an organization as they've become more influential and more well known and as they have never backed down from lawsuits and all the in, the, in a, been above board uh in terms of the law they are now have Enough of a reputation, enough influence and resources that they are, that I think most of what they have now comes from what we would more, what we would traditionally call whistleblowers. Um, but that's, that's not what they're known for. And, and even to the degree that they have whistleblowers, those whistleblowers are often giving them things to them in secret, are not coming forward publicly and are remaining in their position. It's like they – it's known that they have people uh, in various organizations. They have someone in CNN. They have someone in ABC. They have someone in, in The Times. And so to some degree, I, gu- I guess the line between investigative journalism and, and, uh, and, a and whistleblower is getting, <laughs> is getting blurry once these people are essentially recruited to the cause and are feeding you information and remain there. It's not that much different than if you had planted them there.
0: No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like a, it's a, you know, they've recruited yeah, double agents to, to help them win the Cold War here against these organizations, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. which at that point, it may be a distinction without, without meaning. Um, it is still – yeah, I, I still feel like that's actually very much just normal investigative journalism. They've just got volunteers. <laughs> They're doing well enough that the people are volunteering for the job uh, instead of them having to go in every time. Um, some of the stories they've exposed have been, have been absolute lightning rods and they have made significant changes in U S politics because of it. And if you didn't know anything about project Veritas or Veritas, Veritas, I think I keep varying how I Veritas, um, the, the way that they, the impact that they have had is significant. There were a number of things that, as I was Looking up stuff for this, for this episode where I had heard about this corruption, this scandal, this, uh, this secret thing that had come forward. And I didn't realize that it tied back to Project Veritas. So even when I, the name wasn't associated, some of there, there have been tons and tons at this point of stories that have come from them. And often these stories are banned from places like Twitter. And because people are so struck by them, They keep being shared. Mm -hmm. And Project Veritas has a strange knack of, while they're banned from Twitter, their stories tend to trend on Twitter all the same in a kind of grassroots people just posting it and sharing it with each other, even as, as Twitter is trying to stop it, (laughs) stop it from spreading, which is, which is beautiful. Um, so that's that's kind of how the organization has come to be uh, at this point in the current state that it's in. It's got a, It's got a long a much longer arm because people are coming to them. And it's become in a in a sense in the same way WikiLeaks had been been a go-to place for whistleblowers. this is this has become similar in its reputation, and they they will not give up their sources. I James O'Keefe talks about it, he's I will, I will go to jail before I give the names. If a court ordered me to reveal a source for some particular reason, I'm going to jail. That's, that's fine. He's completely comfortable with with being a martyr for this and taking these kind of risks, which is which is so – did you, Brad, have you listened to an interview with James O'Keefe?
0: No, I have not. You have
1: not. James O'Keefe is a striking figure because he is the true believer. Um, who has thought, thought these things through to the degree he thinks is necessary and is, is convinced. There's something, even, uh, there, Eric Weinstein, who has an interview with him that's really interesting and which, in which he criticizes him for the deception and takes, you know, is, is both proud of the things that have come forward through Project Veritas and the, and the investigative journalism they're doing. But has issues with how they're doing it in the collateral damage. Sometimes when Project Veritas brings a story forward, the person who they reveal it through is an employee, you know, the person who's recorded, is somebody who didn't like what the company was doing. And so they were complaining about it. And this is someone who's not on board with the corruption. This is a, often a, someone better than the people around them who is willing to talk about it and is upset by it. And as such, they're willing to talk about it, but they're not willing to become a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. And so they become through this an unintentional whistleblower and are promptly fired, blacklisted by major companies, right? They're no longer trusted and, uh, and perhaps didn't fully deserve that, right? That it's a, it's collateral damage in some sense. But anyway, if, if, if stop me, if you have thoughts, Brad, I know I'm kind of, Skipping around in this because it's it it's an interesting landscape in which there are trade-offs and the trade-offs are, you're not, you're not justified in acting unjustly just because it's going to result in something good. You're not, I, I don't believe the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's what's happening here either. Um, and there are interesting questions in it about, about privacy and some of these, these other issues. But maybe we could kind of recap what are we, what ground we've covered here, and uh, how we go forward into some of these. Yeah, so there's there's
0: a few people who have concerns with Project Veritas. You have you've got the honest concerns from people like you know Eric Weinstein, who is saying, "Hey, people are concerned about their privacy," and and that definitely needs to be looked at. But before we look into that, I want to address the fact that there are other concerns. About Project Veritas that are not so honest, you know. If you yeah. if you pull <laughs> yeah. up yeah. the Wikipedia page for Project Veritas, you know, um, let me just read the first paragraph from this Wikipedia article. Project Veritas is an American far-right activist group founded by James O'Keefe in 2010. The group produces deceptively edited videos of its undercover operations, which use secret recordings in an effort to discredit mainstream media organizations and progressive groups. Project Veritas also uses entrapment to generate bad publicity for its targets and has propagated disinformation and conspiracy theories in its videos and operations. And when you actually look over to the right, where they have the little uh, info blob, the little square that has, you know, the specific uh, details about the company, you know, like the name, when it was founded, all of that. It lists the stated purpose of Project Veritas as disinformation that project <laughs> veritas is just a scam. You know, if you read this wikipedia article, it's very clear it's, it's a far just, right scam. Yeah, a far right scam. Um and it's it at the end of this intro it even tries to tie it in with Trump and have it be associated with Trump, which for me is always an indicator of a uh, of a hatchet job because you know everyone knows that trump is evil and so hey turns out you know that uh turns out that the donald trump foundation donated money at one point you know what i mean oh well then there you go it's 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 over guilty by association Uh you pick Uh
1: yes if you're if you're trying to discard him exclusively on a political basis. He's trying to discredit mainstream media and he's a far-right mm-hmm. activist. And mm-hmm. obviously, that's, that's a bad faith argument as far as news organizations are concerned.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and there, are, there are other articles and things about different media organizations that have gone after Project Veritas aggressively. You know what I mean? And when Project Veritas releases videos, you'll have immediate spin control. Like one of the most recent ones was a video of a reporter saying something, you know, you know, not knowing they're being recorded. And then soon thereafter, the the reporter releases a written statement saying that they didn't actually say anything they said and didn't actually mean that and just spin controlling after the video. Which is evidence to how effective Project Veritas is—that the company itself Demands has to an address it. Response. Yeah, exactly. Almost like President Biden's gaffe. You know, that's that's the world that we live in today. Is it doesn't matter necessarily what the people actually said, as long as we have enough spin control. You know, we didn't actually say that. What we meant to say is this, and that's what we said. Even though we technically said what you said, we said it doesn't count. We get a do Yes.
1: Yes. And uh, the Wikipedia article is right about one thing that the news organizations, the, the mainstream media, which is a ridiculous term in so many ways, but, but, uh, but it is the term that's used. Um, they, uh, there have been a lot of exposures to them. One, mm-hmm. of, one of my favorite ones that is, that is famous was the ABC news story, uh, or about ABC News, where ABC News, one of the reporters had the goods on Jeffrey Epstein three years before it became public, and every and everyone else heard about it. And she was about to break it on air when somebody higher up squashed it. And uh, and you get her on a, uh, I believe on a hot mic, talking about how she had. Yeah, that's had the this story I was referencing,
0: where ABC released a statement clarifying after the fact.
1: That she didn't mean anything that she yeah, said. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was, she was caught in a private moment of frustration. It,
1: it was, was a private moment of frustration uh-huh. where, where something, where not only would it have been a career-making story for her to have broken something so big, but you allowed abuse to continue for three years, right? You didn't stop the most notorious pedophile uh, in terms of uh, you know, public knowledge that we've found in a long time mm-hmm. and that, and that has all kinds of political connections. And who knows that if it had broken earlier, if we could have caught, you know, more people, the people involved in things, it's a, it was a devastating story that, that we didn't get an answer to. Why was this really squashed? And the reasons they had given her were absurd. They were things like, no, no one knows who Jeffrey Epstein is. It does you know, this isn't newsworthy. And like, uh, like just seemingly, uh, Seemingly reasons that were pretexts, because after that story, everyone would have known who Joseph, <laughs> who Epstein was. Mm-hmm. Everyone would have, it would have become news had she revealed what she had. They had a witness. They had, they had a girl who had been, uh, who had been ignored by courts for various reasons and who, uh, and who could, you know, give them times, places and people and things like that. And anyway, it, and if that had come forward then the other girls who would, who later came forward would have come forward sooner mm-hmm. and it would have been this you know the whole thing could have happened faster and it was squashed why i don't know why at the last moment who who made the call those kind of things and you can get some details about uh from from what they uh revealed other things you know corruption within cnn and and various scandals and um it's worth noting that project veritas never just slides into the salacious they're never like, you know, it, it, it used to be a thing where, uh, well, it used to be the case that if you, you exposed someone who was a closet homosexual, right, it would destroy their career. Now that's not the case anymore. But you can still, ex- occasionally there are things uh, within the private life of an individual and, and in their sex lives and things that you could expose mm-hmm. that would have a drastic impact. Mm-hmm. And they occasionally O'Keefe talks about how they occasionally uh, maybe and maybe even frequently get people revealing those kind of things to them, and they have never published any of them. They've never gone down they that care route. About their, They're not. They're their not simply not slandering just to get people. headlines. Yeah. And they're in the or slander. Right? You can destroy people through slander. Mm-hmm. They, they're going to reveal. They want to reveal actual corruption. Um, what I'm saying your well,
0: goal isn't just views. Yes. You know, because yes. if your goal is just views, then anything salacious is worth publishing. Yes. Because things like that, you know, I mean, celebrity gossip is huge. It's a huge industry in and of itself. Even things that are mm-hmm. mildly salacious can can get you considerable considerable viewers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, with those kind of things in mind, with the with a, a somewhat scattered background of what they do and what they're like, and obviously, I uh, I think somewhat highly of them, but there is a there is a very gray area here that we want to get into, and it's the one that's explored by Eric Weinstein and O'Keefe in their interview from a year ago. Um, but it's it's in it's at the point at which the right of privacy affects your daily life, and the picture.
0: Yeah, the real because place. Project Veritas, I mean, is stated purpose contrary to what Wikipedia says is not disinformation, but it's the discovery and the revelation of truth. You know what I mean? They want to yeah. find out what's actually going on and publish it. And so far, the only restrictions that they've applied to themselves are the legally required ones. In other words, as far as the, as the law will let us go to collect this information, we are going to go that far, just like the Sun-Times. You know, regardless of what people consider, you know, proper for journalists to do, we don't care. We're going to do whatever it takes to get this information as long as the law allows it, right? And that's a very unusual stance, especially in a world today where lots of people are very concerned about their privacy and in the world of the internet are trying to take some of that back
1: yes yes that's something it's a common the pushback against uh, exposing your data and things like that is there's there's a backlash because we feel overexposed mm-hmm. we feel like our privacy has been violated in some some way um the best in ex- the best example is is of how this can be abused how this privacy issue you know comes to play is the person in the person in the bar chatting with their friends who is then recorded and fired, even though they didn't specifically themselves necessarily do something wrong. You know, they're, they're fired as a backlash from the corrupt people running the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, but all the same, they end up being damaged by these, by these revelations. Um And people, I, I, I was talking to, uh, uh, um uh my father-in-law actually and and as as i was talking about this he he was on the one hand pleased that corrupt people were being exposed i think people want that in general (laughs) you want Mm -hmm. you want if an institution actually is corrupt we'd like know about it we'd like it to be exposed we'd like it to collapse to the degree that it's corrupt or have to change but then as i we talked about the trade-off that people getting recorded uh the idea that you're always going to be watched and that there's collateral damage that also really bothered him. And I think that's, I think that's probably about how most people are going to feel about this. On the one hand, they like that someone is even if they necessarily use deception to get it hunting corrupt people and getting the truth and exposing it. But they know that Eric Weinstein Weinstein put it this way, they know part of them is afraid of this because they know they could be the one being hunted. They could mm-hmm. be the one who, the next person who's, who said something they shouldn't. They could be the one who in this world where we're going to secretly record each other so that we can catch people saying things, you know, that you could pretend assuming Project Veritas is doing this honorably. Mm-hmm. You can easily see how it's, it could be abused by everybody else and that brings up what what actually are my rights to privacy mm-hmm. when can you record me mm-hmm. and I had no idea I had Brad apparently we talked about this a little bit, you did but I uh going into it I was like yeah wait what are the legal requirements you can record and be recorded in far more situations legally than I had expected. Mm-hmm.
0: I thought you were gonna expound on that. So so uh, l- let me share a you couple You knew ahead thoughts. of me. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me let me share a couple thoughts. First of all, in regards to the the businesses retaliating, blaming that on O'Keefe is an interesting choice. Blaming that on Project Veritas. I say O'Keefe because this is something that's happened more in the past than it's happening now. Mm-hmm. Um specifically, you know, when when he was going undercover and these people were getting exposed and losing their jobs. Because this is not a new concept. You know, whistleblowers are, you know, have have been protected they need in the past. If yeah, exactly. People, yeah. yeah, exactly. But but the the fact is, is that there's someone who did something wrong here on multiple levels, and that's the organization. The organization was First of all, doing something wrong that the person exposed. And second of all, after the person exposed it, they were firing that person because they exposed it, even unwittingly. And in both cases, there's only one person at fault. And when you say, "Okay, well, O'Keefe took this evidence and made it public.
1: And he's got to know when he makes it public how it's going to affect this yeah, person. Yeah, how
0: it's going to affect this person. It doesn't change the fact that the organization fired that person and that person was aware of something that the organization was doing that was clearly wrong and didn't do anything about it. You know what I mean? To paint this person as just an innocent victim is not accurate. Yes. And to to try and pass the blame onto O'Keefe and to Project Veritas is, I think, a mistake because I think right now we live in a world where organizations regularly try and protect their image, right? I'm not even talking <laughs> corrupt organizations. Yeah. I'm talking regular organizations. I'm talking, I'm talking like, like the company I work for. I've heard stories from other employees about, you know, videos getting published of things that happen in the workplace and, employees potentially getting disciplined for it, you know what I mean? Just like O'Keefe's story. And I hear that story, and I don't think, oh, the person who posted the video is at fault, which people have tried to imply when talking about it independent of Project Veritas. I think, no, the person at fault here is the company, you know what I mean? Or, and or the person who did the thing wrong within the company and didn't do anything about it. But to try and pass it off to the reporter as the problem is a serious mistake. You know what I mean? I mean – Yeah. This as used if everything to be,
1: was fine until they came along.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. this used to be the way the world worked and we expected it to work that way. When the Watergate scandal broke, we weren't like, why did these reporters ruin the lives of all these intermediary people who got this exposure? They should have just made it about Nixon. Which they didn't, you know what I mean? It was more than just Nixon, and Uh and people got hurt in that process, but no one blamed the reporters. They blamed Nixon, because he was the one doing it. And at what point did this change, where all of a sudden we're we're blaming the people who are bringing things to light, instead of blaming the people who did the thing that need to be brought to light? And I feel like that's worth noting, because in so much of the world today- Yeah,
1: Mirage didn't get the Pulitzer Prize because they're beginning to think like that. They're beginning to say maybe they're the
0: problem. In in so much of today's world, there's this big pushback against truth. I mean, we've talked about the noble lie with COVID and the enormous pushback that has been brought against people who have raised questions. That they've even made the argument that ask that asking the questions is is an unjust act. You know what I mean? That even asking the questions is causing people to die and, and they should be held accountable for that. And that's the world that we live in. And so so to push back against something like Project Veritas on the argument of that about the casualties is I think a serious mistake. It's like it's like blaming the the, the police officer, you know, for for the the
1: you I mean, know hostage taker shooting a hostage. Yeah, or exactly.
0: Something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's, it's unjust.
1: That's well stated. You mentioned uh, in there also that, that the, the person is not entirely innocent.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that ought to be highlighted in, and also separated from the idea that it's, it may not be their fault that the company is running the way it is. And it, it seems like in a lot of these cases, it isn't. They're not the person calling the shots. And that, and, and so the culpability between them and the person calling the shots is very different. And, but that doesn't make them entirely free of some responsibility. It, as inconvenient as being a whistleblower is, and as even dangerous, inconvenient makes it sound light. In some cases, it's legitimately dangerous and it, and it is, and it will upend your life as, as difficult is, as that is to participate in the lie. To know something about it and not to reveal it or to try and change it is to allow the lie to continue. And there is some mm-hmm. culpability there. Maybe not the kind of criminal culpability that everyone who was aware of it and has to go to jail or something like that. Well,
0: and, and maybe that's a mistake because in, in other aspects of the law, that's how it's set up. If you witness a murder, that's that's you true. say, yeah, I didn't kill anyone. I, I did not okay this, but sure, I saw it happen and didn't do anything. No, you, you are now an accessory to murder. In fact, if you are with a group who, who, who do something illegal, someone. even if you don't do the illegal act, if you were part of it, you're, you're now culpable for everything that happened. You know, you're like, hey, I agreed to rob the store. I didn't know he was going to pull out a gun and shoot someone. Next thing you know, you're being charged with murder as if you were the one who, who pulled the trigger. I mean, that's not unusual. I mean, that's the. Uh, no, that's the. That if is you the go standard, back yeah. to the Ahmed Arbery case, you know, three men are now going to serve life in prison when only one person pulled the trigger. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Three people are being charged with murder, but only one person pulled the trigger. We've all accepted that as how it works. But all of a sudden, that's... when we talk about organizations, we're like, oh, well, hold on a second. Because in I'm many not... ways, it functions similarly.
1: Yes. And I'm not I'm not entirely sold on the idea on the idea of equal culpability. Um I'm not for all participants.
0: But but some culpability. Yes,
1: yes. You have to accept that at least some culpability is there for a participant who has the knowledge. If they if they're ignorant of it, obviously you can't hold them culpable Mm -hmm. for anything. Um but who knows what's happening. Um, does put some obligation on you. And maybe to some degree, they feel like they're fulfilling that obligation when they're venting to someone, right? They're, they're, well, if they're venting to this James, this is bothering then them. They are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is bothering them and they're, they're talking to somebody. And, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dilemma. And it's, and I think if, because there are so many corrupt institutions. In which the middle managers, the people who are in the know, but not calling the shots, could, do have the power to change things and to reveal things and don't. Um, there's the argument, there's the idea, Solzhenitsyn's idea from Gulag Archipelago, the, the Russian guy who, uh, who he, he suggested that the reason Russia became the way it was is because people would no longer uh, how, how's it framed? I'm going to get this wrong. But the idea was that they participated in the lie, that they would not speak the truth, that mm-hmm. they would not they, – there were things that were happening that they knew were wrong. They wouldn't say anything about it. And eventually, you couldn't say anything about it without and, massive repercussions.
0: Yeah, combined with diffused responsibility. You know, you talk yes. about the person who's calling the shots. Well, anyone who's spent a lot of time within a big company can tell you and I can tell you that most decisions are – are not unilateral there's diffused responsibility and the beautiful thing yeah. about diffused responsibility is that it's not just all on my shoulders you know i'm i'm following the instructions from someone farther up and they're following the instructions from someone farther up who's just doing things because we've always done it that way and because of this and because of that and next thing you know people board of people, made the board dis- collective of people decision. yeah yes yeah or you know i'm trying to honor my stockholders or i'm trying to do this or do that and next thing you know, you can't just point to one person. Yes. And say, Be okay, nice here's could. here's Nixon. Here's the president who literally has all the power. That's the beautiful thing about that organization is, you know, the buck stops with one person. So they could say, okay, this person is at fault. But with most of these organizations, it's not so simple. And that diffused responsibility is this warm blanket of protection because almost everyone in the organization can say. This is not my fault, even though they know about the bad things that are going on. And and the beautiful thing about, you know, a lot of these corrupt organizations is the bad things are not murder. They're not, you know, blatant theft. They're more subtle things like protecting the president, you know what I mean? Choosing not to report on things they should protecting report Protecting democracy, on. yeah. Yeah, exactly, that they can justify, and, and it's not illegal necessarily, it's just corrupt, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. those kind of things can easily be swept under the rug as you has, have more and more excuses piled on top of each other. The one we haven't even gone into yet is this idea of privacy, which is one of the, the loosest ideas Legally. Ever. Legally. Um,
1: Truly. Because, we've because mentioned... we
0: don't... This, this, this Theoretically, the idea of privacy doesn't really make sense. The idea of privacy in your home makes more sense. You know, you have rights over your own property. And if someone were to break into your home and, and plant a bug, that would be a violation. If someone were to access your device without your permission... That, that can be a violation. You know what I yeah. mean? There, there are yeah, things have, that we, are in place.
1: We have words for those crimes that mm-hmm. don't involve privacy. Right? Mm-hmm. That was trespassing. Mm-hmm. That was uh, you know, trespassing and tampering with my property. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. – you know, these, are, these are all crimes of a different nature that serve to create an area in which my private things stay private.
0: Yeah, but but what we're talking about in this is is not that case at all. What we're talking about is I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, Dan. Let's say it's not in a podcast. It's a private conversation. And Mm -hmm. I'm telling you things. And my assumptions about what you're going to do with this information are just my assumptions. Unless we've agreed to it beforehand then you're allowed to do with the information I give you whatever you want to do, which is why reporters can take notes or write down notes after the fact about what was said and then report on that. And recording a video is in many ways an extension of that, that (laughs) you're recording the conversation that I invited you to be a part of, and then what you choose to do with that is up to you. And it may be a violation of trust, but it's yes. not a violation of my right to privacy.
1: Right. You could divide it into three stages and say, at what point in here do you draw a line and say this is violation of prophecy and which isn't in, and, and the first stage would be, um, I remember what you said mm-hmm. and I remember what you look like. And I remember you have I violated your privacy. I go and I write it down or I draw a picture of you or I, uh, I make notes about our conversation in my journal. Is that a violation of privacy? And if no, then I record the audio of our conversation on a, some kind of device, and so I can listen to it later, and now it's, now it's in my possession, and I can do with it what I will. Is that a violation of privacy? I record you visually and audio, some kind of video recording, and I have both of those now. Is that a violation of your privacy? And if you can't draw a line and say, one of these is qualitatively different There's some principle that makes capturing your image in my head fundamentally different from in in doing what I will with what I know of your description and my ability to go to someone who can draw and actually get a very good likeness of you Mm -hmm. in the way that police do with their drawings, you know, like how, at what point have we crossed a line and upon what principle do you, do you identify that line? And, And if you can't see one, cause I can't see one
0: and i think some then people maybe listening no would say here. okay well there's a line as soon as you start recording you know up until that point it was okay you know cuz you couldn't that's the that's the cultural norm mm-hmm. yes i think that's you where can remember put it and write it down after that's fine you can draw a picture that's fine but as soon as you start recording me it's it's a violation which is really interesting because as you said that's the cultural norm along with the cultural norm being if anything you see happening is worth recording. You should pull out your phone and start recording it. And you have a right to pull out your phone and start recording it. And because you do, because, because it's your experience and you have a right to document that experience. You know what I mean? So many of these police encounters have only gotten attention because people had the right to do that, even though in many cases the police officers had no interest in them pulling out their phones and recordings. And people will pull out their phones and record other people who aren't police officers. You know what I mean? There's There have been many scandals that have blown up because of these recordings, and we've all accepted that as okay, which then brings it back to... The secrecy thing is you not knowing you're being recorded is something I think people feel very uncomfortable with. This idea that anyone can be recording you at any time, which is true. Legally they can. Legally anyone in- you're in the room with has the right to record you. And and there there are occasionally exceptions to this, but generally that's yes. that's that's the and law. any
1: third yeah anyone you're engaged with in the room with you can record you anyone that is uh even a third party if you're in a public area can record you um
0: yeah that they're in the they're in the room with you even though they're not talking to you yes mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah if you're if you're on a phone call in gen- th- these laws vary from state to state but in the in general this is this is the case um if you're on a phone call and one of the parties wants to record it they can't so you have to have special permission if you're going to bug it and you're a third party like the
0: police. Yeah, like a wiretap. They need a warrant because mm-hmm. neither neither of the people on the phone call want the conversation to be recorded. And at that yes. point, you need, you need special permission, which you can get. It's not totally illegal. They just have to get a warrant. You know what I mean? They have yes. to have permission mm-hmm. versus if one of those people is a police officer and wants to have the conversation recorded, they can't. I mean, that's what. Having a an informant wear a wire in a in a sting operation is all about is that he's a willing yeah. party and so he's allowed to record whatever happens and it's all legally admissible. Yeah, like, this that's is what allows these undercover agents. Time.
1: Yes, that's what that's what allows the undercover reporters to do their thing is because they are a party to it, they can record it. And mm. uh, whereas if they were to set up a recording of some other location, they would probably need some kind of uh, warrant or you know, depending depending on how where it is and how private it is, especially if it's in someone's home, um, the right to privacy uh, in in terms of political theory, it it is a mistake to call it a right. I think it is the the more you look at it, the you have a right to more your doesn't make sense. life. Yeah, you have a right to life, liberty, and and property. You don't own your image in anyone in someone else's head. Or the sound of your voice and someone else's device or, you know, you, your, how people perceive you. And so is simply not, not, not under your control and can't be. Mm-hmm. And to create legal standards that suggest they are and that try and arbitrate this, um, is, is I think a, a mistake. And it's a mistake that lulls people into a false sense of security. Because if you didn't have, as it is right now, because we think of it as a legal right, we establish the terms of that right through a legal, you know, through the political process and and through the courts. And so that we understand the range of that right in a variety of situations. If you removed that, you wouldn't be left with nothing. You'd be left with the reality that you are responsible to take whatever precautions you want in your environment to negotiate with the people around you Uh, you mentioned, someone can't come into my home and just record me uh, if I don't Mm -hmm. want them to, because it's my property and your gym or your grocery store or your, whatever it may be could say no recording on these premises in, in Mm -hmm. the absence of privacy laws as it is now, I'm not sure if they can do that. That would be an interesting point to know, but because we've decided we've decided this at the level of a right, which it isn't, it doesn't make sense in the context of a theory of rights. We now have a general rule when what we could have is very specific agreements and standard procedure. You know, it could be standard that you can't record people in a bar, but as it is, because it's been determined a legal right, of privacy, the limits have been determined through the courts and you can. <laughs> and that's a in in some ways I think by making it a legal rights issue, we've actually reduced how much privacy you would actually have if that were absent in some sense, if that makes sense. That practically the way it's played out, um you actually have less privacy because government is trying to protect it than you would if it weren't.
0: Well, and I'd say it's not because government's trying to protect it, because government's trying to moderate To decide it, it. yes. Yeah, it's yeah. deciding in which cases can you have privacy and in which cases can you not. And and that's so arbitrary and so technical <laughs> that trying to have broad general rules about it makes no sense. It's the so I,
1: arbitrary that you can get an abortion because you have a right to privacy, which makes, was the Supreme Court argument.
0: Yeah, which makes no sense. You know, there there are <laughs> arguments a, to be to made – <laughs> There are arguments to be made about why you might have a right to abortion. We've had an episode about abortion. You'll probably notice we didn't spend much time talking about privacy because on a moral, ethical, and political level, it makes no sense to argue privacy. Privacy was chosen as a –
1: Convenient political vehicle.
0: Yes, exactly. As a legal loophole to push it, not because it made sense. What I was going to say is that if you really believe that the right to privacy exists in the way people talk about it, mm. then then fundamentally what you hold is a belief that people don't have a right to look at you unless you want them to, that you have a right to your own mm. image and voice. They shouldn't be able to hear you unless you want them to. And what's amazing about that is that you're right. And that if you don't want people to look at you and don't want people to hear your voice, then you better hide your face and hide your voice. Yeah, you don't have to interact with them. Yeah, but as soon as you choose, you know, you see someone's outside and you walk outside next to them, you've made the choice to let them experience you, to let them see you, yeah. to let them hear you, to let them communicate yeah. with you. And and to start Anything. putting arbitrary restrictions on that after you've made the choice to engage is totally arbitrary and nonsensical yeah. and not yeah. based on a clear principle, we already have a clear principle, which is that you have the agency to go outside or not go outside. But once you go outside, you're choosing your ex- to expose yourself to the vision of other people and the ears <laughs> of other people, just like you choose to expose yourself to the coughs of other people that might transmit COVID to you.
1: And if you want further limitations, which which is fine in a lot of contexts, it makes sense that you would. You need to negotiate that with those people, or you need to pick a place that has the standard that you want observed so that you're not being recorded or you're not being, uh, whatever else, you know, would make you comfortable engaging with other people. You can do that. You can navigate that without the right to privacy concept. You do it through negotiation. And it, and people think like that would be a lot of work. It, it isn't. It would be something that happens virtually automatically. In the absence of the law already imposing a universal standard, and there are a lot of there are a lot of and things that contract essentially contract law would handle relatively easily, even seamlessly, if the law hadn't created other things that took over at first and that make much less sense.
0: And and by the way, when we're talking about pri- privacy here, we're talking about general principles and general principles. There are more complicated nuances. You know, you can get into nuances. Okay, okay. Well, what if you've got you know super powerful satellites that have the ability to see things that you, as a normal citizen, would never think were possible? What if you've got you know hearing technology that allows them to see, hear to you listen to in your nerves. home, even though they're a mile <laughs> it, away? At this what point, about, you
1: have we have the technology that you could peer through people's walls and and, and see them in their home. Yeah, and which see is how not acting.
0: Yeah, which is which are unusual circumstances that I do think there is a place for looking into that. And as yes. you get into the to the world of technology and the digital world, these things become incredibly nuanced. And there is a place for privacy there. What we're talking about here is establishing clear principles of what privacy actually means so that we can then determine what's right in those nuanced situations. The problem right now is that right now we have cultural norms and we have a bunch of arbitrary laws and more than anything else, it's those arbitrary laws that are determining what privacy means instead of having it be based on any principles. And that I think is the major problem.
1: Yeah. You could work out the nuance much better in the absence of, of these things. I think you, you would have much, you'd start on much firmer ground. Um, and as far as, uh, it's interesting to hear O'Keefe talk about these issues because he, his, I think his opinion on privacy is much more in line with ours than it is with the legal standard, but they do follow the legal standard extremely closely um, because they know they're going to get the crap suit out of them all the time because they're, why? Because they're exposing people with a lot of power and influence. Um, if so, they, uh, They follow the letter of the law exactly, but it's a, but in terms of what it should be, what would be ideal, um, I don't think the right to privacy ought to be thought of as a right and privacy may be an issue as Brad was indicating, but in relation to other things like, uh, property and other location, you know, locational or, uh, uh, you know, related to the, the more primary rights and how they operate. Anything else?
0: Sorry I just have I have a lot of thoughts about privacy and and it's a fantastic conversation but I also want to tie this back into Project Veritas and and remind you that that it's this search for truth that more often than not is what I see being attacked today not just in Project Veritas but in Joe Rogan and these other podcasts and so many different avenues that that so often it seems like it's not truth that we're searching for but it's comfort you know what i mean and maybe us being a little bit uncomfortable is not the worst thing in the world us us being afraid of saying something that exposes a truth that's so ugly that we might get fired for it we should be more concerned about the fact that we know such a truth and aren't saying it than about the fact that someone might be listening you know what I mean? That's, that's my takeaway from this is, is what ugly truths am I ignoring and hoping no one will notice? You know what I mean? What, yeah. what things do I let happen on a regular basis and do nothing about? Because that's what Project Veritas is really about, is the idea that we're all comfortable with this corrupt world that we live in. And we really shouldn't be. And maybe it's time for us all to get a little bit uncomfortable. And that's what Project Veritas is about. And it's inspired me. And I hope it's inspired you a little bit to be uncomfortable with that. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at RethinkingPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at RethinkingPolitics.Podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks. Have a wonderful day.